Welcome everybody to another episode of Get Out of Your Own Way Now. I'm your host, Bob McIntosh, and I am very excited today to share with you a friend that I've met through my business partner, Gigi. Uh, his name is John Stewart, not the John Stewart, as his bio says, but a John Stewart. John's a phenomenal business owner, and I'm going to let him talk more about himself as we go. But as you know, guys, I always strive to bring on the best that I can find for each and every one of you to learn more about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and how to get out of your own way. John has a fantastic story that I think you're going to get a lot from. So thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Great. I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. You're talking about a subject that is near and dear to me, uh, but I'll explain a little bit about and maybe it would help if I, if I give your viewers maybe an idea of who I am. Absolutely. Uh, in the background. Uh, I have over 45 years in healthcare. And, uh, you know, I started as a respiratory therapist working in newborn intensive care units. So, uh, very used to working with the vulnerable and those who have needs from a health standpoint. Uh, I was blessed to be able to, uh, uh, to develop my career and, and receive promotions and ultimately worked for 34 years in the nation's largest nonprofit health system. Which is amazing. Which is a faith-based organization, uh, which um, to me was really aligned with my personal values. And when we talk about, I think, some of the questions of what you're doing with this series, uh, you know, I, I believe a lot. And, you know, my first mentor was my father. And uh, as, we, uh, as we learned and I started to progress the, my career, uh, became hospital vice president, hospital chief executive officer, uh, and uh, ultimately became the chief administrative officer for uh, the physicians of this large uh, organization. And we had 11,000 providers in 24 states. 11,000, that's a lot. And so part of my job is to, was to develop, it was really around formation to pull the team together. Okay. Uh, and so through that, I, I realized and learned throughout my career, I had a passion for leadership development and coaching. And so I had the opportunity to, uh, to go into what I consider to be early retirement or partial retirement. I failed at it miserably <laughs> because I realized I've, I've got a purpose and I'm not going to be happy if I'm not living up to what I enjoy doing. That's perfect. And so, guys, if you don't have a purpose yet, think about that. I want you to start thinking about that. It's something that's very important. I can speak from my personal experience on that, too. Right. And so I think the uh, uh, after failing at, at retirement, semi-retirement, for three months, uh, I... That was it, three months. Three <laughs> months. I, I pulled a, and I invited a group of thought leaders from healthcare that I have uh, met and respected at my one of my favorite wineries in Sonoma, California. And it's interesting how creative you can get after a couple of glasses of wine <laughs> in uh, the gorgeous wine country. And uh, uh, we realized that, uh, and the name of that company, and I have three business partners in that company, but it's the Arete Provider Network. Uh, and Arete is all about quality and living up to your potential. Uh, which is, it's a Greek word, uh, but that's where it comes from. But I also have another company that, uh, T4 Leadership Development and Consulting, uh, to where I do a lot of uh, executive coaching, 
But also, and one of the things that I'm very passionate about is I'm at an age to where that I've been blessed to be successful in my career after starting with a very meager, very poor childhood in rural western Kentucky, uh, setting an, an example and, you know, when I give lectures or, or meet with people or even people that I'm coaching, uh, they say, how did you get here? Right. Well, they're quite surprised when I say, I really don't know. <laughs> this was not my plan. But part of it is, uh, and your business partner, uh, you know, there's a, a good friend that I know through her that made the comment, whenever you fall into a valley, you tend to pick yourself up and do even better. And so it's not always been perfect, and uh, and I think that really speaks to uh, what you're doing with this the, this series. Uh, you know, you put your you pick yourself up. This is not sexist, but you put your big boy pants on, and uh, and you look at uh, you have external influencers, you have internal influencers. To me, the most difficult ones are to deal with the internal barriers. Because a lot of times we're our own worst enemy. Absolutely. Uh, and that's the hardest to work on. It always is. So what have those been for you? What are some of those big barriers that you've been able to break through? Well, I think the, uh, I mentioned my uh, uh, rather poor upbringing. Because of that, early in my career, uh, and I would say even throughout my career, uh, I've been driven by a innate sense or fear of failure. Okay. And I know that there's a lot of effective and very uh, uh, exceptional leaders. They didn't let that, some people will let that get to them to where that they just really can't, uh, they almost freeze and they can't function. Uh, but you know, the uh, uh, I am a relater uh, and there's lots of tools that you can measure your personality types and I do that for all of my coaching clients. Uh, but I was first a relater, mm -hmm. but now I'm a promoter. Okay. And so uh, I've learned that, uh, and you know, when you're a relator, and I think particularly with a lot of the clients that you have, uh, they're in an industry, particularly in real estate, you have to be able to work well with people. You have to read people. And I know you folks work with others that, that teach classes and are experts in body language and things like that. You don't have to be perfect at everything. In fact, one of the strongest traits of effective leaders that almost every author will tell you is humility. Uh, you know, first, uh, be willing to accept, you know, I don't have to be right on everything. I don't have to be, I don't have to have strengths in everything. We all have strengths and weaknesses and quite frequently people want to surround themselves with people that are just like them. That's the worst thing you can do. You should have a diverse leadership team. You should look for people who to work with who have strengths that offset your weaknesses. Could not agree more. I've been through a couple of business partners that, you know, we just, we have very similar ideas and ways we functioned and it always just ends up creating heads budding and that's no good for anybody. Right. Now that, uh, uh, you know, and, and that's one of the things that uh, I've just been teaching with my current leadership group. You know, you have to look at, you know, when you have angry or headbutting or things like that, you have to understand that anger is a secondary emotion, secondary to fear. And so a lot of times if you're running into headbutting and somebody is just not willing to, 
to consider a change, just simply ask them, what are you afraid of? Hmm. It's a good question. I caught you speechless. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about those times that I've butt my head against someone and going, you know, what was the fear there? What was the, what was it? And I think it's a hard question to answer sometimes because you're so caught up in it not being the case. It's, some, it's always something else. It's an external force that's not that. And so we don't think about that oftentimes. And that's a, a trick that I use in, in uh, working with groups. When you run into and you've got a lot of friction going on, I always teach you need to, because people feel like, that, particularly if you're in a, a senior executive position, well, I need to be the one doing all the talking. No, you're not. The effective leaders understand that you need to learn to listen and ask more questions. And so when you've got tension that develops and you're not being able to get beyond it, uh, I usually look for those questions that de-escalates and causes people to think in a different mindset. Okay. Uh, so, for example, I have frequently uh, a simple method that I use for teams that, okay, we're just, everybody's given us reasons why we can't, why it won't work, why I can't do it. I just simply ask them, okay, then what is it going to take to make it work? <laughs> so it, it just makes the mind think in a different way from from the head buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know there's a lot of folks that could use that very that very question. I know, you know, especially if you talk about the real estate space for sure. You know, you're talking with contractors and it's like, no, 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 we can't do that. Okay, well, so what would it take to make it work? That's a great question. I love it. Right. Okay, so tell me more about, you know, you, you, you said a little bit about your, your poor upbringing and you've gotten here and part of this drive for you has been, um, you know, the fear of failure. What else? Because it can't, I'm guessing that's not the sole thing. There's probably more things that drive you um, and the success that you've had. You don't get to where you've gotten when just one thing, I wouldn't think at least. No, and I, I think there's another uh, component that I find with most people who choose healthcare. And I didn't choose healthcare to start with. I was actually... My original major was in mass communications and radio and TV broadcasting. Okay. Uh, I knew that voice was popular for a reason. <laughs> that lasted for about two years. And it's like, then I realized, ooh, I'm actually going to have to afford rent and afford my <laughs> car payment. Uh, and just happened to chance into healthcare. But I do feel that a lot of people that ultimately end up in healthcare, uh, for most of us, it is a calling. Okay. Uh, it's a, and so the calling for me, and again, this gets back to, I mentioned earlier, one of my first mentors, and I was so thankful to have him, was my dad. And, you know, he would do anything for anybody. Okay. Uh, very humble uh, person, very positive person. Um, but as I look at healthcare, I think in me, I do have a sense of wanting to provide and help others do better. And I think that's exactly one of the reasons why that I enjoy the professional coaching that I do. That makes sense. And by the way, for all of you watching, if you're not in the healthcare space, that's okay. I think the lessons that he's giving you apply to a broad range, whether it's healthcare or not. So, you know, I, I always, I always want to make the point on this, even though the specific example may not be specifically in the details relevant to you, the overall picture, the, the lesson to be learned can be applied to pretty much anyone in any business and maybe even in life generally too. Absolutely. There, there's, there's guiding principles and there's a core set. And, you know, I've had people talk about, well, but you know, you, you've always worked in such a large organization. 
good business etiquette and process works regardless of the size of the company, whether you have 150,000 employees or if you have 15 or if you have two. Uh, and believe it or not, it even works if you're the only person in the company <laughs> and you own the company. If you're being rude with yourself, you got bigger problems. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been known to do that. <laughs> so John, uh, obviously you had before a company where you worked for you were over 11,000 doctors and now you're working with a REIT, which is a much smaller company. What have been some of the challenges in having a smaller company versus one that's much larger? Well, I think the uh, uh, a lot of the challenges in healthcare apply regardless of the size of the company. Uh, I think the there is a very different skill set when you're doing a startup, as we say, and I've done multiple startups in my career. Uh, but you know, when you're doing a startup, you know, and we frequently say, you know, we've got uh, 30 employees at the corporate level, and then when you look at the individual physician practices, we're only about 100 FTEs right now, but our business plan really calls us is that when within three to five years, we will have 5,000 uh, providers, and we do intend, uh, and, and currently we're located mostly in the Pacific Northwest, um, but uh, as we start to look at and to grow those markets, I mean, as a startup, you've got everything from the basic legal setting up the structure. Are you going to be a for-profit? Are you going to be a not-for-profit? Uh, are you going to have shareholders? And, and you have to go through these things. You have to work on the funding. Money has to come from somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> uh, now, in the healthcare uh, technology and small startup space, there's a lot of, of funds available these days because uh, particularly with the recent COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, it has really, in most of our practices, our primary care practices, uh, it has changed and we feel, and I work, I respect our physician leaders uh, and clinicians, uh, and we all feel and agree that the face of healthcare has changed forever. Okay. So you've got the challenges of just doing a startup uh, you know, you've got to, as I, I use this, and I know it's a frequently used analogy, but you're flying and building the plane at the same time. And there's no such thing as, well, that's not my job. Uh, if you say, and you tend to want to say, that's not my job, you don't need to be doing a startup. <laughs> uh, because it's one day you may have the chairman of the board hat on, the next day you may be emptying the garbage. Right. Uh, and so those are the things that you have to be willing just to roll your sleeves up uh, and work with it. But, you know, I, a couple of things that I have used through each of the startups that I've done is that you always start first, and this has to be a group effort. You start first with what is your mission, vision, and values? Because that is laying the foundation for every difficult decision that you have to make or even any decision you have to make, it has to be rooted first in mission, vision, and values. Okay. Uh, because you have to have something to strive for. You have to have that guiding North Star. That makes sense. Uh, as they say. So once you get that and then develop, secondarily is to develop the culture. We're blessed that the individuals, we've, we've hired incredible talent, uh, everything from MDs to MSWs to 
PhDs in data analytics, uh, and you look at all of the different skill sets, everybody has really gravitated to the mission, vision, and values. Once you have that, it's much easier for people like me at a board level saying, okay, we've got the right talent, we're here to teach and to mentor, mm -hmm. and then get out of the way. <laughs> and that's hard for some people, because is. a lot of people, particularly if they're naturally controlling, high controlling individuals, they want to be in the detail. Uh, but if you're a, an owner or a board member or you know someone who is in a strategic uh, uh, position, I always say, you should be working on the company, not in the company. So as the company grows, then you start to fund, uh, you know, we bring on more providers, we grow our network, we're applying for our, uh, to be have our own accountable care organization uh, in this cycle. Uh, we already have uh, our uh, clinically integrated network. Uh, and so there's a lot of moving parts, but again, the biggest challenge, getting the right talent. Makes sense. So let's let's talk on that some more on talent, but specifically, how does talent relate back to the mission, vision, and values? So if someone on here is going, well, I haven't I haven't done any of those three things, or maybe I have some vague idea of what those might be, or maybe I have some thoughts jumbled in my head that kind of are there, but we haven't flushed them out. What advice would you give for thinking about each of those three things? And you know, is there any questions that you should, they should be asking about? developing that or you know can you provide some more detail for everyone to say this is how you figure those things out so that everything else can kind of fall in line yeah, and I think that yes absolutely and I, I think that there's uh, and I could easily I have a ro the roadmap up here <laughs> uh, but once you have the mission vision and values then you have to what we've been working on and I know as as you and your business partner have been observing this week we've been spending a lot of time this week and last week really looking at and fine-tuning what our service offerings are. Okay. Because once you understand what your service offerings are, then you start to understand what type of talent you're going to need. And I use a tool, and we've done it for our entire company. Uh, I use a couple of tools, and, and they're trademarked, and I'm only going to use the, the acronym. But the BIR, which is a behavioral assessment tool, and the TKI, which is really how you deal with conflict. Okay. And a lot of times in a well-established company, in an executive level position, you're going to have them take that as part of the application process. So it, it's what in human resources is frequently referred to as hiring for fit. Uh, so you look at what talent is needed first, and then you look at, okay, is this individual and their personal values and what motivates them and how they deal with conflict, are they going to be a fit for the mission and vision and values that we've created? Okay. And so, you know, when, when you're talking the interview process, do you outline your mission, vision, and values for them so they understand? Is that, or the, before they even get to the interview, do you, like, where would that be, I guess, um, shown to them or explained to them or... or we absolutely, and we've got multiple uh, sources. I mean, it's it's clearly uh, defined on our website, areadprovidernetwork.com. Perfect. I'm not raising money uh, <laughs> or running for office, uh, but uh, get, a, get a good wave going on. Right. 
We, uh, uh, we, yes, we, we always start in any presentation that we have. And uh, as we're, and again, we're still, we're only, we hired our first employees only a year ago. Uh, and so uh, even when we have meetings, uh, you know, our employees, the 30 that are at the corporate level, they all collaborated, collaborated in developing our mission, vision, and values. Okay. So they have ownership because they participated in it. That's awesome. Uh, and so once we have that, then you are building in buy-in when you have that. But in future meetings, as we grow and we have several thousand uh, physicians and uh, and team members. Uh, you, I usually in the approach I take is you always have in any large meeting somewhere you're going to have your mission, vision, and values displayed. Okay. Uh, because you and I always when you're going through a discernment process, particularly if it's challenging, I always ask the question: Where does this fit in with our values? And if we're looking at, uh, say, a physician practice that has asked us to consider acquiring them, uh, which is not our preferred approach, but we will, but we start first if the independent practice would like to become part of our practice, which a lot of physicians would say, I want somebody else to deal with the administrative part of it. Right. I just want to give good quality care and make sure I want to have control over who I practice with who are higher, uh, but you do the rest. Right. Uh, and a lot of, and that's a very common, uh, common approach. Uh, but I think the, uh, as you start to grow, you always refer back to, and uh, you just ask the question, is this in alignment? If we are interviewing a phys physician practice that has asked to be acquired, and we feel that they're not a cultural fit, we'll walk away. Walk away from the table because it's never going to be worth it. Never going to be worth it. Good to know. So, just to make sure that everyone watching is clear, can you kind of define from your point of view what is a mission, what is a vision, and what are the values? Just so that everyone knows, hey, this is exactly what we're talking about. One of the because I think a lot of a lot of folks watching this, especially in my audience, at least right now, have probably never gone through this exercise. They may have heard it, or maybe they worked in a corporate job where they had those, but more often than not, they weren't there as part of development. So maybe they don't fully understand. So right. From your point of view, what what are each of those things, and what do they mean? And I would uh, thanks, Bob. That's actually an excellent question, and I'm glad I'm prepared for an answer uh, uh, because that would be a difficult question if we hadn't thought through it. But the highest level uh, is the mission. That is really the what's the purpose and intent for this company existing in the first place. Okay. And for ours, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase to simplify it. Uh, but it's really to, we want to influence the quality of healthcare in the United States. We feel it's dismal. Uh, it's been for multiple reasons. Uh, we want to be the tip of the spear that affects that change. The vision starts to become more about um, how, what is our roadmap or what is our desired approach to accomplish the mission? Okay. And then the values is how you're going to measure yourself and develop the culture to see that you can accomplish 
the vision and the mission. Okay. And is there like from a value standpoint in the mission and vision, is there an ideal length or number or just whatever it is that it's, as long as it communicates what you need it to? Yeah, and it, it's, uh, uh, you know, I came out of an extremely large faith-based Catholic organization and faith-based health care systems are notorious for having flowing, lengthy mission statements that the general public it's like, what is all of that? You know, that's, uh, that's, that's large corporate speak. Uh, whereas you take, and, and I, you know, if you look at the Nordstrom's vision statement, and I can't quote it exactly, but it's basically similar to one of our values, which is just do the right thing. <laughs> uh, and we have five uh, of our core values. But as, as you look at that, our uh, mission statement is really a paragraph. Uh, and then our vision statement is about the same length. And then, as I mentioned, we've got our uh, we've got our core values. Uh, and uh, uh, but that's uh, core values as much as anything is the roadmap in how you develop and maintain the culture. Okay. And everyone every year for your annual review process. It's in your handbook when, when you're hired into the company, uh, and at least once a year, uh, we ask managers to make sure that they meet with their team members, and a part of that uh, is to look at from a performance standpoint, we always do a 360 degree uh, performance review, but a big part of that is clear, concrete examples of where and how they're living the values. Okay. And that's, that's one of the things that I do feel that I was blessed in the organization that I worked with for 34 years. That was something that, you know, when you look at a health system that spans 24 states, um, you could walk into any one of those hospitals, regardless of size, and you're going to feel the mission and vision and values is palpable. That's awesome. So you can do it on a large scale. You can definitely do it on a small scale. So I would imagine that if you had too many core values where it got almost oppressive in a way, potentially, you might actually turn people away from wanting to work with you because they're like, I, maybe I, they can't fit 30 core values or, or hit every single one of them exactly. So having a good balance of the ones that are important to you but not having so many that it becomes unreasonable to, to live that way. Yeah, when I have uh, uh, in my period of time in my career when I was doing consulting, I used to do a lot of board facilitation and helping create those mission, vision, values. And I used to say, you know, I, I would challenge them to try to limit it to about five. Now, a lot of times when you start and you've got groupthink going on, you may start with 20, <laughs> but then as you start looking at them and wordsmithing them, oh, well, wait a minute, this one is pretty similar to this one. And so you start collapsing and because I think when every employee in the company, we call team members, every team member in the company should be able to recite what the mission, vision, and values are. Okay. And if it's lengthy and you've got 20 of them. <laughs> I get that. I, there was a, 
a company that I worked for in the past, so they were attempting to define that for uh, within our group within the company. We had had the company wide one, we had our group one, and the first the first set was like 25 long, and I'm looking at it going, there's ain't nobody gonna follow all that. Like there's so much here, so that makes a lot of sense. Well, and, and let me give you a, an example of of a challenge you asked earlier about you know in a startup. Well, with all of the effort that we put into creating the mission, vision, and values, uh, I, in one of my team meetings, uh, decided to test the process. And so I told them, I said, without looking, who can name all five core values? <laughs> and if they weren't able to, what happened? Nobody, Nobody could. Nobody could, okay. So what that caused, and you know, those are the types of challenges. What you have to do is then, and this is the role of leadership, uh, you have to instill to where, as simple as like I, the example I said earlier of asking how does this fit our core values, ask the people and keep referring to them, keep them in front of them, uh, put it on your desktop uh, uh, to where that it, it's used. I have our core values on my desktop. Okay. And even with the partners who are the board right now, we frequently have discussions in our partner meetings, how, how does this apply to our values? Because if we don't model it, how can you expect the rest of the company to model it? That's perfect, that's perfect. And do you feel, is there a certain point at which that those should start to be developed? If you're a one or, or two person shop, is it still relevant to develop those things now? Or is it like, hey, once you start creating, you know, bringing on employees, that's when we should start to do that? Like, is there a time yeah. frame? I, I think you start with mission and vision and values, even if it's just yourself. Uh, that's an exercise to go through the minute you decide you're starting a company. Okay. Uh, because that, you're building the foundation and you know, when we were working on our uh, three and five year business plan, which you have to have to present for funding sources, uh, when you develop that, uh, you have to start with that uh, because again, that becomes your roadmap for everything and you're creating the foundation for something that is gonna be sustainable for something that is multiples of a hundred or more beyond what we have today. Right, and so do you adjust those values and, and the mission and vision as people come on? Because you had said earlier that, hey, like some of, some of your early employees actually helped form what it was, but obviously I'm guessing you had already started the company at least a, a little bit before those people came on board. So do you adjust and mold as you need to, or is there a certain point that you stop? Well, and th that will vary from how the company is starting. We were somewhat unique in that we chose to acquire existing companies uh, to help in speed to market. Okay. Uh, it was an upfront investment, multiple millions uh, to be able to do that. Uh, but you are, and, and we picked companies that we felt either had a technology service offering, providers, a, a clinically integrated network, talent. Uh, we picked those that we felt were going to uh, to move this this vision along. But when you're merging, and I mentioned the eleven thousand providers in the organization that I came from, 
you know, when you're pulling that many together, and there were several thousand actually clinic practice locations, uh, when you're pulling them together, again, getting back to mission, vision, and values, uh, you have to almost tear Humpty Dumpty apart mm -hmm. to put them back together again. And you, you're going to deal that anytime you're going through an acquisition. So if you're going through an acquisition, how, first off, can you tell them who you are? Uh, and then once they're acquired, they always want to know, what does this mean to us? Right. Uh, are you going to come in and clean house or are you going to retain talent? I always prefer the latter. Why do you want to eliminate talent if they're a good fit for the company? Uh, and so typically, I and I know there's a lot of turnaround companies that, that come in and just, you know, their role is just a whack. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. All right, so I think that's, first of all, for all of you watching or listening, make sure that you have your mission, vision, values. In fact, I would love to know what they are. So drop a comment wherever you're listening, watching, whatever. I want to know what you've taken away from this. And, and if you have developed because of this conversation, your mission, vision, and values, let us know. I would love to know what those are. Um, so I guess my next question, which might actually be our last question given our time. Do you believe that there's a secret or what has been your experience with attracting the right talent? So you've talked a lot about having the right talent, keeping the right talent if you find it uh, in acquisitions. What is, the, I guess, maybe a key to either finding or attracting talent? Uh, considering that most of the folks listening or watching this are probably either hiring their first, second, or third employee. They're fairly new. So you know, I know for many of us, sometimes we tend to go, oh, this person will fit the bill or, oh, they're the cheaper person, so we'll go that direction versus attracting the right person. And I also think that sometimes we come in and we say, I can't afford great talent. Um, but I think sometimes that that's not always true. So what's been your experience in finding and attracting the, the best talent you can? And if someone ever said that to me, I would say you can't afford not to hire the right talent because you're going to pay for it over and over again because the cost of recruiting someone to replace a bad hire uh, is is much more than if you hire first. Now, there are a lot of excellent uh, external human resource companies that can recruit individuals, and the best ones will spend time talking with you on what is your company about, what are your values, what are you culturally, what are you looking to fill. Uh, that is, and, and most of them will do an excellent job of screening the candidates and give you what they feel are the top two or three. Okay. Uh, which actually helps you. <laughs> That's kind of what it is. You're, you're, it's the first date and you're trying to figure out, okay, are we going to go to date two or not? So, and quite frequently after the first screening call, there's more get screened out then make it into the process. So you really take your time initially finding the right person. Makes sense. So is there, I mean, when, when you're thinking about, I'll say attracting the right talent. So of course, obviously, we're looking for the right person. We're looking for the qualifications. Do they fit our mission, vision, values? If they're looking for those kinds of things. Um, do you find that, you know, d does money matter to a certain extent? You know, obviously, you know, you're not going to get a $50 an hour person for 10 bucks an hour, but, you know, do you find that money at some point becomes less important or at least within a certain percentage does? Do you find there's other factors that, you know, 
I, you know, I, I was reading, and the reason that this comes up is I remember reading an article that was very interesting to me. I talked about how this company knew that they couldn't pay the best talent, and they were frequently losing the best talent to like Google and Facebook and Apple and these big tech giants that can offer a lot more money than they could. And they said they found that actually the, the number one thing that kept people around longer wasn't more money, it was the fact that it was very upfront and open about communication about this is going to happen, we're going to lose people, we don't frown upon it or get angry at it, we simply celebrate their time with us. And I thought that was interesting. And so it, for me, it changed my perspective on it may not always be the money. And I think a lot of new entrepreneurs think that the money is the only thing that matters. Well, maybe it's not. But what's been your experience? Um, excellent question. And I believe strongly that in a values-driven organization, which we are, and you don't have to be in healthcare to be a values-driven organization. And the number one reason why people leave a company is not money. Uh, it's because of their manager, mm. uh, more often than not, or the culture of the company. Okay. Uh, you know, there are some companies that I've been in, you know, e even in the hospital industry. You go in and you can just tell that, you know, that it's like you walk in the door, it's like, this is an angry place. Oh, man. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so I think the, uh, and I had uh, one of my chief medical officers that reported to me, uh, I'd never seen anyone take it to this level before, but uh, when you're recruiting physicians, uh, you know, they're, first off, on average, it costs about $50,000 to recruit one doctor. Wow. And, uh, and that's not including any sign-on bonus or things like that, that you have to get them to come in. But he had a rule of thumb that if the first question that a candidate that was interviewing came out of their mouth was, how much money am I going to make? He stopped the interview and he said, you're not a good fit for this. <laughs> and I say that that applies even for, uh, you know, you have to offer a competitive of course. rate. You're not going to stay in business if you don't offer a competitive uh, salary. Uh, and, uh, it, but it doesn't mean that you have to be in the top decile either. Uh, now I think, and, and obviously, you know, in, in healthcare, it was a very competitive marketplace for a long time. But now, particularly with COVID-19, you've got large health systems and groups that are laying off doctors and clinicians. It's crazy. So it's no longer a, um, a buyer's market. Uh, and so that uh, industries will change and even I think as we look at the current economy, uh, anybody that says they know where this is going to head in the next five to ten years, I would run the other direction. <laughs> they may want to write a book and tell you that they can, but right. uh, we don't know what we don't know right now. Awesome, John. Well, thank you so much for being here. Truly appreciate having you. I know it's been a great conversation, very illuminating for myself. I imagine for most of you watching or listening, the same has been true. So if people want to know more about you, where can they find out about you? At, at uh, aritprovidernetwork.com and also t4leadershipdevelopment.com. Perfect. And what is T4? What does that stand for? T4 was a company I started right after I was leaving the large health system. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I mentioned my father mm -hmm. uh, in the earlier part of the interview. And, uh, you know, he always had a saying, son, you've grown taller than the trees. Taller than the trees. All right. T4. Okay. Four T's. Four T's. And if you look at the logo mark, 
on T4. It's a Japanese symbol with a squish that my niece actually created, and that is the Japanese symbol for tall tree. That makes sense. I like it. Taller than the trees. That's perfect. That's awesome. All right. Well, uh, you guys feel free to check out John, learn more. Obviously, he's a wealth of information. We only had a short period of time today to get to know him more, but uh, I've uh, two times now I've gotten the chance to stay with him and, and just he's been a wealth of knowledge. So I truly appreciate you being here. Um, as always, everyone, please subscribe, rate, review, um, drop a comment, give me a like, whatever it is. If you have questions, drop them in there. We'll be happy to answer those. And of course, if the questions for John, I'll make sure he gets the questions too so that he can answer that for you. Uh, I just appreciate each and every one of you for being a part of this, watching, and we'll see you guys on another show real soon. And best of luck to you and Gigi in your efforts as well as your, your clients that are watching this. Thank you. See, this is just kind of the kind of guy he is. Just awesome. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by 3 Degrees Consulting. If you need funnels, websites, paid ads management, or help with any of your digital marketing, 3 Degrees Consulting is your go-to source for everything. Check them out at www.go3dc.com. That's G-O, the number three, D is in degrees, C is in consulting.com. Go check them out right now.